Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Well, good morning, Beacon. It is great to be with you. It's always the unusual feature to be the guest speaker among you because everybody's going, who is this guy? Um, what has he done to Robert that we kind of like the old Robert better? Um, I've been coming to this area for about three years now to work with a group of pastors that are on the island, and, and it's an experiment that the Lilly Foundation is urging to help us see if they can thrive in the midst of complicated issues. Robert is my companion in that, and it's a rich friendship that has developed from his doctoral work now to this project, and Robert just informed me that I'm now the oldest pastor that has ever stood among you. And I thought, wow. And he also reminded me I'm the only Presbyterian to ever be let in the house. So I thought, okay, this is good. This is good. Then sings my soul. I love it that you're going through great hymns this summer. And Today, getting to hear the old rugged cross was a rich experience for one like me who is old because old people like old rugged crosses because we sang that, you know, for years. And to cling to that is what opens the door for everything I'm going to describe to you from a passage from Matthew. So if you've got scripture with you, I'm going to be reading from Matthew 9. It's the very end, final paragraph of Matthew 9. And it is, a, it is an interesting text about what God is hoping to do in what is called the harvest. So listen to God's word. It's a brief text. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Last verse, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The text is all about one central problem and one prayer to make it better. Let me tell you a story. To start this off, April the 12th, 19, April the 15th, 1912, was the day that Fenway Park was opened in Boston. Now, most of you here are Met and Yankee fans. I happen to be a Red Sox fan. I know that's a trouble. But, you know, that's a pretty big date in, in Boston history. But did you know that something else happened on the very same date that is more famous? I'll give you a hint. Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet. Titanic went down. 
Titanic went down that same day. And because of the movie, most of us know the story of the sinking of the Titanic and some of what led up to it. What we don't know quite as well, unless you've read on it, is the story of the rescue of the Titanic. Because, you see, what we know is that four miles away across the water sat the Californian, this ship. The Californian is actually a ship that was ahead of the Titanic going toward the west, going toward the U.S., and it, in the old crude wireless system, had sent a message to the Titanic about the dangerous ice field, and they said that they were going to anchor and wait for it all to pass. Remember, the Titanic was in a hurry. It was trying to get somewhere in record time, so it ignored the warnings, and it hit the iceberg and damaged it severely. But again, the, the Titanic had this impression that it was unsinkable, that, yeah, it might have hurt something, but we've got all these mechanisms so that it's not going to sink. And only later did they fully discover that they were in trouble, that it was, in fact, sinking. And so the Titanic sent a message to the ship, we're in trouble. Can you come help us rescue people? But the message got bungled up with a, a line of messages that people had been sending to all their friends and relatives were on the Titanic, boom. And so it, it, it got very delayed. And when it finally arrived at the Californian, it was 10 minutes after the wireless operator had gone to bed. Missed it by 10 minutes. It was sent earlier, but it wasn't received earlier. And so the message, please come help, was not received by the Californian until the next morning. So four miles away, there sits a perfectly good ship while the Titanic is going down and nobody knows. So the Titanic, as they're sinking, sent off seven red flares into the night sky. The night watchman saw them. But the night watchman wasn't sure what that meant exactly. So he actually went down, woke up Captain Lord, which was always a dangerous thing to go wake up the captain, and said, hey, the Titanic just sent seven red flares. What do you think that means? And Captain Lord said, you know, I bet they're trying to signal another ship behind them about the dangers of the ice field. And so Captain Lord, who later had to testify this before Congress, went back to bed. And the night watchman tended to go from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat, so goes over here, sees the Titanic in trouble, comes back, wanders around, and eventually, after midnight, he comes back and, huh, the lights are gone. And he has to make a decision about that. What happened? And the night watchman concluded that the Titanic began to sail back east toward Ireland, where it had started, to get away from the ice field, and that it had gone over the horizon, and that's why he couldn't see the lights. Because four nautical miles, you can see the lights. So you got to picture the Californian. Everybody slept through the night in perfect peace while literally more than a thousand people were bobbing up and down in the North Atlantic and died that night. Slept perfectly well. There was another ship, though, 
And that other ship was called the Carpathia. The Carpathia got the same distress signal that the Californian missed, but they were still awake and got it. And Captain Rostrum had to make a decision because they were actually sailing to the east. They were going to the Mediterranean. It was a cruise ship. And they were going to take all these wealthy Americans on this great tour of the Mediterranean. And Captain Rostrum had to call everybody up on the deck and say there is a disaster about 40 miles north of here. We're going to have to abandon being a cruise ship. No more cruise ship. We're going to be a rescue ship. And so they headed north, increased their speed from 14 knots to 17 knots. They had to dodge icebergs themselves through the night to get to this long, faraway place to rescue the people from the Titanic. And all 705 who were rescued were picked up by this ship. So all the passengers, all the crew, all the physicians, all the attorneys, in fact, they were all transformed into being a rescue ship, and those folks were saved. One, slept, one ship slept comfortably through the night. The other transformed into a rescue ship. So the question before us today, what's Beacon Church? Are you more like the Californian, or are you more like the Carpathia? See, when a church is planted, you've got to be a Carpathia. That's the only way you survive, is you're getting out there reaching lost people. But did you know that sometimes churches, later in their time together, they can start to drift. <clears throat> they can start to get focused on self. So it's always a fair question to ask, what kind of ship are we actually here? And sometimes a church has an identity of being a ship, but sometimes that identity is not lived out quite as much. Soren Kierkegaard told this funny little illustration about a man walking down a sidewalk, and he has all these funny little parables. A man walking down a sidewalk in Denmark, and, and he sees a sign in a shop that says, Pants Pressed Here. And he takes a look at his pants. He says, you know, actually, they kind of need pressing. I think I'll just go right in. And so he walks in, walks up to the counter, and starts unbuckling his belt. And, and the person behind the counter says, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'd like to have my pants pressed. Well, why would you expect me to press your pants? Because they need pressing. But why would you want us to do it? Well, you got a sign in your window that says, pants pressed here. So I came in, and I'd like to give them to you now. No, 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 no. You don't understand. We don't actually press pants here. We just paint signs here. <laughs> now again, every church, evangelical church I know, has on their mission statement, we reach lost people. But you know, you're kind of rare. Because you actually do. Most churches just paint signs. But you've got to think about how does that continue. So I want to give you a couple things in this text to notice. Number one, I want you to notice the eyes of Jesus. The text says when he saw the crowd. 
That word see, there, there are a lot of words in the Greek language for the verb to see. This word is one that literally means noticed. When he noticed the crowd, when he actually saw who was there, the first thing that goes on with a church that slips from its rescue is that we start to not see lost people. We start to no longer see people that are away from God and we slowly, mostly start seeing ourselves. So one of the things a church has got to constantly do is keep our people engaged with people around them. We've got to live in proximity to them. When we get cut off and don't know anybody, that's when we start to drift. Can you see them? There are a lot of things I don't see. I might be the only one, uh, but sometimes when my wife and I go have dinner in somebody's home, we're on the ride home, and she'll say, hey, did you notice those beautiful drapes in their dining room? And I went, what drapes? And she said, well, your back was rubbing against them. How could you not see them? But, but see, there are things, am I the only one, incidentally, that doesn't see things sometimes? Okay, I guess I am. But, you know, there are a lot of us who, who live in the world, but we don't always see. And so when you hang around a church a long time, you start to not see people who are not part of it. You just don't see your neighbors. You know, most Christians actually don't know the names of their neighbors on both sides and the three houses across the street from us because they're using remotes to go in and out of their garage. We, they don't sit on the front porch anymore. They sit on their back deck. Until COVID, they weren't even out walking their dog and they got dogs and started walking them in COVID. But now we're finally seeing our neighbors again. You've got to see them. So keep pressing a church to see. And then secondly, you want to notice what Jesus saw when he saw people. They were harassed and helpless like lost sheep. Meaning he saw them in a struggling state, not as if everything in their life was going rosily well. Sometimes we're embarrassed. We think, well, their life is actually going better than mine. Why would I introduce them to Jesus? That would just mess up their Sunday mornings. But actually, it's going to enhance. It's going to bring a meaning in life. That old, rugged cross is going to open them to a, a vision of glory. A life that is different, that is transformed. But we've, we've really got to recognize that lost people are actually in the state of a struggle. When, when Paul is recounting his conversion story in Acts 26, he, he uses this one-line description that's not in Acts 9, not in Acts 22, where he also gives this conversion to describe what it was like. It's like kicking against a goat. And the Holy Spirit said, why do you want to kick against the goats? It hurts. It must hurt you to live that way. And what people find today is anxiety, struggle. They're not in the happiest moments of their life. They may try to say they are. And there are a ton of folks that are actually like this in our own country. You may not be aware of this, but we have more unchurched people in the United States than any country in the world except four that are above us, China, India, Russia, Indonesia, than us. 150 million. Most countries of the world don't even have 150 million people. That's how many lost folks are in this culture. And we have to keep saying, do we see them? Now, if you watch culture, you're going to assume, ah, looks like they're having the happiest times of their life. They're not. They need what you have. They need a way maker. 
They need a promise keeper. That's who you are, O Lord. Jesus didn't just see them, though. Thirdly, Jesus had compassion on them. That means he really cared about them. Compassion is the secret sauce that gets a church engaged in reaching people who don't know Jesus yet. It's not obligation. Robert can should you and ought you all day long, and you're not going to do it. You should do this. You ought to do this. You're not going to do it. You're not going to do it until the compassion of Jesus is born in you. And for those of you who have received Jesus, you not only got Jesus' eyes when you received him, you also got his compassion. Now, it may be blocked up in you. You may have turned off the channel. You may have turned down the volume. We, we are told by sociologists we're a nation that feels compassion fatigue. We just can't hear about a country in distress one more time because the world's a mess and the news tells us. Don't turn off your compassion meter. That's what will ignite you finally to move. And when your compassion for broken people is higher than your compassion for your own reputation, you're finally going to move. But that's a great value battle inside us. I do want to reach lost people, but I don't want them to think I'm an idiot. I do want to reach lost people, but I don't want to look like a fool. I do want to reach lost people, but I don't want to damage my reputation. I'm just going to wait until it's better. Compassion. Turn to your neighbor and say, how's your compassion? Do it right now. How's your compassion? That's the key ingredient. Every now and then when I lived in Colorado Springs as a pastor, I would get together with Wes Stafford, who was the head of Compassion International. And Wes was a fascinating guy because we would sit down at lunch. We always sat at the Black Eyed Pea, which was a restaurant out there that Southern people kind of like Black Eyed Pea restaurants because they have gravy and things, grits that we love. And, and so we would sit there and he would tell me about where he'd been. And what children he had seen in India or in Peru or somewhere in Indonesia. And, and, and Wes would begin to cry as he told me about those children. And he did it with such compassion that, you know what? I'm not really a crier. I would start to cry. Wes is crying. I'm crying. We're at the Black Eyed Pea. The waiter would come out. Are you guys Okay. And we'd just be there crying and our napkins were getting all wet because he really cared about children. The old rugged cross is an invitation to understand the compassion of Jesus who was willing to go that far. See the people around you. Ask Jesus to awaken your compassion. See the people around you. Ask Jesus to increase your compassion and my compassion. Because what we see fourthly in this text is that Jesus sees plentiful possibilities. Oh my goodness, look at all this. The fields are ripe to the harvest. I mean, there they are. So you look at Long Island, you go, really? There's a harvest that is ripe? You look at the area I live in in north of Boston, really? Are you sure, Lord, there is a field white for the harvest? But you see, when people start seeing aspects of the kingdom of God emerging, and that's what Jesus has been preaching. He's been preaching the kingdom, and he's starting to see it's breaking forth out of the ground. 
The first Great Awakening happened in New England. George Whitfield was one of the major components of that. And he just started seeing that there was a hunger underneath the veneer of coldness. That's what John Wesley saw in England. That's what drove the ministry of Dwight L. Moody. That's what Mary Schlesser saw when she went as a missionary to the Cameroon. At Gordon-Conwell, where I teach, we have students from 50 countries in the world. And they are so excited to tell us what God is doing in those places. I mean, it's just amazing to hear the stories of what's happening in India, what's happening in the Philippines, what's happening in Mongolia. A friend of mine is the, in Colorado Springs is the director of Young Life in Latin America. Wow, the harvest is going well there. In Boston, the church is actually growing for the first time in over 100 years. It's growing mostly among immigrant churches as people have come here, met Jesus, and introduced Jesus to their neighbor. It's not growing among what we would call the white churches that are in the Boston area. How is the harvest here? What does Nassau County look like to you? Do you see plentiful possibilities or do you look around and go, isn't it a shame the way people are now? Wake up to compassion. Wake up to compassion. But there is one big problem. Would you turn to your neighbor and say, you're it? Just turn to him right now. Even if your spouse, just tell him, you're it. One big problem. One big problem. And then everybody point at me. One big problem. We don't have enough people in the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I want you to know that line because that's going to be on the final exam at the end of this. Remember, I'm a professor now, so we do tests at the end. The harvest is... The workers are? Okay, about half of you got that. Let's see if everybody can get that. The harvest is? The workers are? See, that's a problem. Big harvest, not enough workers. I come from a tribe that doesn't do much evangelism. Did you know Presbyterians just don't really excel at that? Um, we actually did a study on them, and they, a Presbyterian will share their faith with an unbelieving person once every 15 years. That's not too often. Sometimes I tell my congregation, oh, this is your year. I mean, this is it. You know, it's coming up. Um, in the United States, there are 360,000 congregations. 80% of them are stagnant or declining. The ones that are growing are mostly growing by what we call the circulation of the saints. They're finding a better deal, uh, moving from one church to another. We're not doing a great job in this culture. Write this down. We're not doing a great job in this culture in reaching folks who don't know Jesus. We're looking kind of ugly to people who don't know Jesus. Plentiful possibilities all around us and most churches are just taking care of their own. Do we paint signs or do we actually press pants? You know, it doesn't take that much to get this thing started. But it takes seeing people and be willing in compassion to take a step. I'm going to tell you a story about my wife. Sarah is an amazing evangelist. She sees people. Goes to the grocery store. She can tell you all of the checkers' names because she's found out about their life story. She, just, she sees people. She doesn't see a transaction. She sees a person. 
1981, she was working as a nurse in a hospital in a Boston suburb. She often worked with a nurse named Debbie Carruthers. It would be an understatement that Debbie despised Sarah. She just didn't like her. Sarah's kind of Southern and kind of sweet, and Debbie's tough. And so Sarah kept trying to get close enough to say, Debbie, I'd love to talk to you about... She'd cut it right off. It was just impossible. And finally, we're about to move. So she's worked with this woman a year and a half and has not told her anything about why she is who she is. So she, last night, she's just filled with compassion. I've got to do this. So she decided that last night, whatever we do at our lunch break, I'm telling her. It's coming down. Target. Ambush is coming on. Well, wouldn't you know, Debbie felt this. She just intuited this, and she called in sick that night. So now what's Sarah going to do? Well, she sat down at break and wrote her a two-page, just two-page handwritten story of how she met Jesus and how she thinks the gospel, which she explained, could be helpful for Debbie. Because Debbie was an unhappy person. And then we moved. And we didn't have email and all that back then, and so we just moved. And then we moved back to Boston seven years later for me to go to a little more school. And Sarah's hanging out at a mall, walking up and down the mall, and suddenly she hears her name and she recognizes, oh, that sounds like Debbie Carruthers' voice. Sarah! And she kind of ducked because she thought, oh, she's going to get a, I can't stand that letter, whatever. You know. And she raced over to Sarah and she said, Sarah, I've become a believer. I've been baptized. I have joined a church. In Boston, they make church, kind of two-syllable church. That's the way they say it up there. I've joined a church. Uh, and she said, it all started with Yaletta. And she pulls the letter out of her purse. She's got Sarah's letter in her purse. It was a failed attempt at doing evangelism that helped through the movement of the Holy Spirit somebody come because she saw her and she had compassion on her. Historians have often wondered how the first generation of Christians who, for the most part, were unlearned men and women, could have propagated the gospel so rapidly. And the great historian who's not a big friend of the Christian faith, Adolf Harnack, said this, we cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. That was their secret. Every Christian... Not a formal order of missionaries supplied by the Christians at home. Every Christian considered it his or her obligation to bear witness. That was the secret. And then Harnack adds this haunting line. But now, seemingly, that's been lost. That's been lost. Do you know why Robert and Trevor are so intent on equipping you in your faith? Because the only way this thing called Beacon Church is going to work is if you actually articulate that faith to people that are not here. And it takes a long time. It's a slow process for people to come to belief. Do you realize the average time for a person from first hearing about faith to belief is four years? That's the average time that it's incubating in their souls. And they've typically heard it nine different times from five different witnesses before they say yes. Nine different times, five different witnesses, 
But that's why we need so many harvesters, because it's going to take a while. So what's the solution? Did you catch the solution? So form a task force, get a committee, uh, put our heads together. No. The solution is to pray not for unreached people to come to Christ. It's a prayer for harvesters. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send more people into the harvest field. Pray. Do you know, I rarely hear churches praying for that. Move us, Lord, until we're ready to do it. We don't need to coerce people who don't want to do it. We don't need to complain that they're not doing it. We don't need another class. That may help us feel a little more comfortable. Instead, we pray that the Spirit raises them up and gives them the eyes of Jesus and gives them the compassion of Jesus because there is an enormous need, a magnificent harvest, and we need some more people in the harvest. So pray. So I want you to, right now, I just want you to look at that person that's the problem that you pointed out. Would you look at him one more time? You're the problem. And I want you to say, I'm going to pray for you right now. Now, that means you're praying for, the other person's praying for you too. And we're going to pray for eyes and compassion. Eyes and compassion. And that's all we're going to pray for right now. That God would move us, and then I'll give you a pop quiz at the end. So let's pray. Lord, the person sitting next to us really needs to have your eyes. And really needs to have that unlocked in their heart. And really needs your compassion to be unlocked in their heart. And my prayer right now is that you'll send them into the harvest with those two things in place. And that they will not quite rest until they go. And Lord, I pray that you would move each one of us who is praying that prayer with the very same thing. Would you fill us with your compassion and give us your eyes that we might take this step. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who died on an old rugged cross. Amen. Now, final pop quiz. Let's do it one more time. The harvest is? The workers are? Therefore, pray. One more time. The harvest is? The workers are? Therefore, pray. Amen. You got it. You pass. You don't have to come back for the next service. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.